Lord, have mercy on us. Christ, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us and grant us your peace. Amen. In the name of Jesus, who always answers that prayer and is full of mercy to people that he loves, my dear friends. You know, if you um, roll out this word in print or say it, spelled K-Y-R-I-E, probably uh, 80% of the Americans you talk to are thinking of a basketball player for the Brooklyn Nets, aren't they? His name is Kyrie Irving, and he's very popular with all the Milwaukee Bucks fans because he had the bad luck to come down with his ankle on top of Giannis's enormous feet, and he sprained it, and that took him out of the last games. Um, the Bucks barely got past the Nets only because of Kevin's a big toe, and the fact that uh, Kyrie Irving was not able to play for the Nets uh, probably if he had been there might have been just enough of an offensive boost to push the Nets past the Bucks, uh, but instead he was not there. So um, thank you, Kyrie, and I hope you're feeling better. I wonder if his mama named him after the Greek word for the Lord. K-Y-R-I-E is known to Christians, at least those who come from a liturgical tradition, uh, what, I, what I'll, I'll call, uh, if you recall my comments before the service, the full meal style of Christianity, not the casual uh, sort of uh, small-scale low-church meal, but the full meal uh, branch of Christianity, the Catholics, the Orthodox, Episcopalians, and to some degree Methodists and Presbyterians, but we Lutherans kind of stand with one leg in each of those two worlds, and we can kind of go in either direction. But in the full meal version of our historic divine liturgy, the divine service, K-Y-R-I-E is the first of the great songs of the ordinary, meaning the parts that don't change. And we spoke it and sang it just a few minutes ago, Lord, have mercy. And I'd like to ponder the importance of that with you so that every time for the rest of your life, when you say those words and when you sing it, you really mean it. You know, it's a sort of a genteel form of cussing, isn't it? When you're upset with somebody, you say, oh, Lord, have mercy. And you don't really mean it. What you mean is, that's, that's like a semi-cussing talk for I'm upset or I'm, I'm disappointed or oh, good grief. But it's a wonderful phrase. It's at the heart and core of what it means to be a Christian. And I want you to get the shivers every time you say it because it's so important. It's the very first of the unchanging songs and texts of the grand liturgy that we Lutherans have inherited. We didn't invent the service structure that we're using today. We are heirs of it. And it starts with the Kyria, which is the oldest piece. In fact, it's so old, it doesn't even use the Latin terminology. It's older even than Latin Christianity. It's the Greek word. Kyria is the Greek word for O Lord. And it's often paired with its twin word, eleison, which is the Greek for have mercy, Kyrie eleison, or sometimes smushed together, Kyrie eleison. 
is a liturgical phrase, kind of like Hosanna or Hallelujah or Amen, ancient words that have become responses in and of themselves, and they're not even translated. Hosanna, Amen, and Hallelujah are Hebrew words that have come straight into English uh, through detours through Greek and Latin, our, our Christian ancestors in the Mediterranean Christian world. Kyria has been sung and said by Christians. In fact, it might even have been a Jewish ritual. Some of the Psalms have that mercy phrase very heavily. Um, you know, in the Lutheran world, one of the ways you can spot somebody who's been Lutheran a while is if they know the secret prayer to say at mealtimes. You know what I mean? If, if you sit down with some friends and you say, let's pray, and you say, come Lord Jesus, be our guest, and they join in, ha, they know the secret password to enjoyment of the Lutheran vibe. They know the secret Lutheran prayer because uh, his mercy endures forever. That's based on Psalm 136, which uses his love or his mercy endures forever as a sing-song refrain, like a drone chant. Uh, if you ever read Psalm 136, it might seem a little repetitive because there's probably about four dozen verses, and the second half of every verse is, for his mercy endures forever. But that's the point. It's almost like a, a Hebrew rosary. The chanting of that phrase carves it into your brain so you never forget it. And I think that's one of the reasons that that Lutheran secret family prayer has engraved itself and cut itself into our memory so deeply is it's such a good thing that you want your kids to know. Give thanks to the Lord for he's good. We don't say fear the Lord because he's judgmental. We don't say walk in terror because today might be the day in which you get judged. The phrase we say over and over is, thank the Lord, he is good. And his mercy and his love keep on going. It's like the Energizer Bunny, even better. They endure forever. And I have a hunch that in the synagogues and in the temple worship, they loved repetitive refrains like that, that the people could join in. Even and especially the children could join in and say, and his love endures forever. His love endures forever. And the early uh, Christians, who uh, predominantly uh, were Greek-speaking, incorporated that into the first uh, refrain, congregational refrain, that was incorporated as a regular feature in their communion services. And having Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy, in a communion service goes back at least into the 200s AD, might even be older than that. So that means Christians have been singing and saying, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, kind of Trinitarian, you know, uh, uh, say that trifold repetition always emphasizes the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They've been singing that for 1800 years, isn't that cool? So we're starting with the oldest one today, and I'd like to celebrate and read with you uh, an absolutely spectacular little nugget of scripture. It's as Jesus was on his death journey and was almost at Jerusalem and he knew 
Every step he took towards Jerusalem was walking towards his death. He had no illusions. And he steadfastly kept going. Instead of running away or evading it, he bored into it, straight at it. He'd been walking slowly uh, from across the Jordan River. It's called Perea. Uh, St. Luke talks a lot about his Perean ministry on the other side of the Jordan. And he's heading south. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Israel, but it's more than hilly. It looks nothing like Wisconsin. First of all, the southern half is semi-arid. And the southern part, um, like south of Jerusalem and south of Hebron, gets uh, to be a very harsh desert, four inches of rainfall a year. It's, it's like uh, south of Tucson. It's like uh, Death Valley. It's just very hot and dry, very little water. And it's, uh, Israel is mountainous, not just hilly, but actually mountainous. So traveling has its difficulties, and there's only a few good ways to get from uh, the southern part of Judea up to the other half up north in Galilee. You can go along the ocean. It's flat there. That's called the Way of the Sea. That was um, I-10 back then. It was the interstate. You could go through the mountains. There were mountain paths, and you could take the zigzag route and go up and down. That's much more tedious. Also, in meant you had to go through the region of the Samaritans, which a lot of Jews did not like to do. Or you could take the Jordan River Valley. Now, that's, that's great, but there's a problem with going from Galilee to Judea through the Jordan River Valley. The Jordan River ends emptying into the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea is the lowest point on the face of the earth. 1,290 feet below sea level. So when you're walking down on this flatter land, much easier walking, but now you've got a problem. You're in a bowl. You're down in a deep hole. Jerusalem is several thousand feet above sea level, so you've got to climb 4,000 feet to get out of the hole. And there's no water. It's severe desert where the Dead Sea begins. The Jordan is the only water. So once you leave your water supply, what's the first thing you're going to do? Go where there's water. Find the next oasis. And of course, that's where the, the road uh, was beaten in and uh, heavy traffic carved a road. And the first oasis, a day's walk after the nice flat Jordan River area where you start climbing out of it is at Jericho. And so Jesus is heading for Jerusalem now and he stops at the oasis. Duh, everybody stops there. In fact, Jericho had been destroyed. You might think, wait a minute, was that, I learned in Sunday school that the walls fell down. Is that, is that Joshua fought the battle of Jericho? Is that this Jericho? Yes, it is. The ancient Canaanites knew how important this was. They call it the city of palms because in the middle of the desert, there's enough water there to support palm trees. And so it was uh, uh, absolutely worth rebuilding even after the, the Israelites destroyed it. So Jesus approaches Jericho and whom should he meet but a blind man is sitting there by the roadside begging. What else do you expect them to do? There were no government programs back then. There was no disability income. There were no government services. There were no social workers in those days. It was uh, survival of the fittest in a, in a sense. 
And because he was not able to find work that he could do without vision, his family made him beg so that he at least could bring in some money. Humiliating. This man's life, as far as he was concerned, was over. I, I, just imagine, try to imagine for a minute what that man's life was like. It's not a great strategy to get chicks to go out with you, is it? To be blind. Who, who's going to want to date you when you have no prospect of an income and can't support a family? This guy had a ah, very miserable life. How many times do you think he prayed for the restoration of his vision? And as we're going to find out later in the story, he probably had it and lost it. You know, you can lose vision through disease. You can lose it through injury, perhaps through some kind of work accident. You can lose it in warfare. You can lose it in a physical assault. There's all kinds of ways you can lose your vision. We are not told how. But that's even worse, to have had it and then lost it. Now you know what you had and, and it's been taken away from you. So this man was a nobody and he knew it and was treated in that disposable kind of way. When he hears the crowd going by, he asked what was happening and they said, Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And the most extraordinary thing happened. He's going to holler at this person whom he cannot see with all his strength. He immediately has a plan that Jesus can help him. Why? Because somehow he has figured out, did he ever hear Jesus before? Who knows? Did he hear the stories of what he had done? Almost certainly. Had he heard pieces of Jesus' teaching? Yes. Did he figure out Jesus' identity? Yes, he did, because he didn't holler out Jesus of Nazareth. Listen to what he says. Jesus, son of David, he is attributing to Jesus what even Jesus' own disciples had trouble accepting that he's not only a blood descendant of the great King David, but he's the great king like David who was to come. He is the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So he, he doesn't, he comes, his blindness had given him a humble spirit. Before you complain to the Lord about all the problems in your life right now, you might want to say thanks at least for some of them, because what that does is it humbles us. Every one of us is at risk of becoming addicted to our foolish pride. And if you're going to say, well, I'm not, pride is not one of my problems, I think you should maybe check with some of the people who live with you. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know too many people who know me or hang around me know that I'm, I can be fairly stubborn about some things. And some of it is because I'm brilliant enough to be right most all the time. But some, well, at least as I assess things. But some of it is I'm just too lazy to change and I'm too stubborn to want to yield. Hardship humbles you. A friend of mine whose life had disintegrated said, Mark, never pray for humility because God will give it to you. Thought, Whoa. <laughs> good, good words. So I'm kind of careful of praying for humility because... I know how, what humility school is like. I've been to a couple of sessions at humility school, and I may be headed for some more. But this man's blindness had tenderized his heart. 
and he had the right posture when he came to Jesus. He didn't come at him like, you owe me. Like, hey, how about, hey, miracle healer, how about a little action? How about some healing? Hey, great prophet, how about doing a little prophecy on me? He didn't come with an attitude of entitlement, like you owe me. He hung his head and came in humility, aware of his own sinfulness, and asked for mercy. He said, Kyrie, Kyrie eleison, Lord, have mercy on me. What is mercy? Mercy is a gift that is undeserved. Mercy is something flowing downhill from, from a greater to a lesser. Mercy is something that is given. It is not a payment for services rendered. It is a gift. Mercy means that the giver is absorbing some injustice in him or herself and not holding the other person's faults and flaws against him or her. When that blind man came to Jesus, he humbled himself and asked for mercy. And they told him to shut up. They're just like, uh, I don't know if any of Jesus' disciples were in their group, possibly. They didn't want Jesus to be bothered by children. They weren't so sure he should be talking to women. Uh, this religion talk was really for, for men, as they thought. And apparently they didn't want the disabled to clutter up their journey. And they told him to be quiet. But he thought, what have I got to lose? I have nothing to lose. He hollered even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. Kyrie eleison, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? He knew, right? Isn't Jesus all-knowing? He wanted the man to express his confidence. He wanted to hear it from his mouth. What can I do for you? Lord, I want to see the Greek word anablepso actually means to see again. So that's what makes me think that he had had vision and lost it. Who knows, macular degeneration, did he have glaucoma? Um, did he have detached retinas? Or who knows what went wrong with his vision? The, the eyeball and the nerves and the brain software that processes the electrical images that the eye sends are a very complex piece of uh, human machinery and there are many things that can break down in that process. And we don't, It's not important to know what was it. But he said, I want to see again. And Jesus said, and here again if I could just offer a little uh, nerdy Greek insight. Jesus, in, in Greek it's one word. He said, I want to see again. And Jesus said, as a command with a big exclamation point, see again. He just said it. See again. Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And that word for heal in Greek, sorry to be so nerdy on you today, there's just some nuances in the Greek text that don't quite get out in English. Uh, your faith, sesokin, has healed you. And it, 
possibly also means has saved you. And they're both, both those things are true. Jesus did a divine healing. Many times he refused because people were playing him. They were like looking at him as entertainment. They wanted a show. They wanted some material advantage. They were uninterested in the message of his identity and work. They refused to see themselves as poor, miserable sinners, as we said a few minutes ago. And very often Jesus said no. He refused to perform miracles on demand. But in this case he did. Why? Because the man's faith told Jesus a healing miracle would not be misunderstood and do some damage to his faith. Your faith has healed you. Actually, Jesus' strength has healed you, but his faith made it possible for Jesus to do an intervention that would not be misunderstood. Even more importantly, your faith saves you. More important than your eyeballs and your literal vision is the spiritual vision you have that sees me as the Messiah, the Son of David, who is to come into the world. Also, coming into the world, not to do his work through power, strength, and defeating Satan by the force that God has at his disposal, but humbly absorbing the injustice of suffering for the sins of others. This is the heart and core of Christianity. Please don't ever yourself believe, and please don't let any of your friends or people you know Try to talk as though Christianity is a matter of rules, a rule book that you need to keep. And sometimes when Christians interact with the wider semi-Christian or non-Christian world, it's often friction over the rules that we see things that we know are not God's will. And that's the first conversation. That is not the first conversation to have with somebody who doesn't know the Bible and doesn't know Jesus. This is the first conversation to have. Jesus has come to bring rescue and mercy to people who need it because of his unconditional love, because he absorbs injustice in himself and swallows down his anger over our failings and evil that lurk within us. And he loves us unconditionally. Do you have a glimmer of what that means? I only partly do because my brain is mortal and it's limited. Unconditionally means he does not hold our sins against us. The people I'm supposed to love most in all the world, my family, only get partial understanding and forgiveness from me because try as I might, I remember their shortcomings so quickly. And God's mercy is as if we had never sinned. He pardons us as far as the east is from the west, we can't possibly forgive one another that purely. Celebrate that today. When we ask for mercy, we have it. This is the core of the Christian faith. Let your conversations with people you know who don't know Jesus all that well, let it revolve around this. We'll get to the rules later. Because the, the rules which are there for our good only make sense if you have learned to trust Jesus' love and learned to trust the Bible. If you aren't 
there yet in those two things. Talking about the rules is pointless. In fact, it, it, it's worse than pointless. It's destructive because it only confuses people and makes them angry and makes you look like hypocrites and mean. Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And all the people around it praise God too. I want to celebrate mercy with you. When, when we sing in the divine liturgy or say, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, here's four takeaways I want to leave with you today. And I hope that some of these things were going on in your head when we said them a half an hour ago. And I hope for the rest of your life they go through your head. Number one is the appropriate posture of humility. Whether or not you're literally kneeling, when we say, Lord, have mercy, we're making ourselves small and accepting the fact that our lives have not measured up to God's original intent. He says those things to us not to beat us down any further, but just to get us honestly to admit a need. Christianity is not a business-type religion that's interactive. When you walk into a store, you look for something you want, or when you're zooming around and looking online for stuff, you're looking for stuff you want, there is a transaction. You will pay for something and get what you paid for. Hopefully you'll get even more than you paid for. You'll find a good deal. Some people look at their relationship with God as a transaction like that. I do something for him and then he owes me and has, does something for me. Get rid of that idea completely out of your head. Our relationship, our interactions with God start in humbleness of spirit. And it starts, always starts with curia eleison, Lord, have mercy on me. Calling on God to absorb our injustices in himself, the Son of God takes away the sin of the world. And we come to ask for interventions into our life for things that we need not because he owes us, but because he said he loves us. Mercy is freely given downhill, and we're asking for that mercy. Second, when you say, Kyria, Lord, have mercy on me, have it with confidence, just like this blind guy knew with absolute certainty, I'm not sure how, that the son of David was here and he can rescue me, can rescue my physical condition, even more importantly. He can rescue my soul, spare me from the judgment through the forgiveness of my sins, and give me the immortality that I long for to be in heaven. Curia eleison comes and encourages also confidence that the Lord has had mercy upon us and given his only son to die for us. Third, give him the praise that he deserves. So it's fitting that Gloria in Excelsis Deo always comes right after Kyria. The song of praise to the Lord who has had mercy on us in, in our divine service uh, is like front, um, front end, back end, or it's like first and second. The, the glory to God always comes after Lord have mercy because he has had mercy. Give the Lord the praise he deserves for his amazing trifecta of blessings, forgiveness for the sins of your past, favor and a tailwind in the struggles you have right now, and the absolute guarantee of your own resurrection and immortality. Man, it does not get any 
better than that. Thank you, Lord. And finally, point four. As you now we come full circle to our scripture reading. You all know the story of the Good Samaritan who helped a, a man who had been the victim of a violent robbery. How does that story end? How do you be a neighbor to somebody? So who was, who was the neighbor? And the, the Jesus questioner says, well, I suppose the one who had mercy on him. As you have received mercy from God, be a broker of it and give it to others without grumbling, without bitterness, without reluctance. To give mercy means in some way you have to absorb injustice too. If there have been people in your family that have given you a hard time, you might shun them or like screen them out or you don't want to talk to them or you're angry and you want to dish at them. Let it go and move on. And when you speak about them or have the opportunity to speak to them, let mercy come out of your mouth remembering that your presence in heaven is 100% God's gift. And in the way in which you talk to people, especially the ones close to you, let grace and mercy come out of your mouth, showing that same willingness to forgive that our Lord has shown to you. Kyria eleison. Lord have mercy. Christ have mercy. Lord have mercy. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.